We are in Hebrews uh, chapter 5. We're towards the end of chapter 5 this morning. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll do a little bit of a refresher about where we're at and how we got here. And then we'll, uh, we'll dive into this warning section. Uh, there are multiple warning sections in Hebrews. This is perhaps the most famous uh, because it's the most difficult. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you love us enough even to, uh, to tell us uh, about the judgment that we deserve and even to warn us about falling away from uh, the salvation that's held out to us. And so give us wisdom as we come to your word now, uh, wisdom to understand it rightly uh, so that those who are in need of admonition would not uh, too lightly read these verses and ignore them. And those uh, who are a, a smoldering wick and a bruised reed would not be utterly crushed by the truth that we read in your word here. Father, we know that, uh, that the true understanding of these verses uh, is neither of those things. And so uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so a quick review. Remember, and this, this becomes especially important this morning as we come to this warning passage, we have to read this warning passage in its context, not just its literary context in Hebrews, but in its, its communal context within the, the community to whom he's writing. Uh, and so the, uh, the author of Hebrews, the entire book, is appealing to a group of people who best we can tell are predominantly Jewish, though probably include Gentiles, uh, who are Christians, all of them Christians. And the, um, the temptation appears to be for this community to either abandon Christianity to go back to Judaism or to, to so mix Judaism into their cre- Christianity that it ceases to be Christianity. It becomes a, a syncretistic religion. Uh, and so one of those is the case here. It's, uh, it's difficult and probably ultimately not necessary to figure out which it is. Either is fatal, uh, and both are of the same kind, really. It's just a question of degree. So the author of Hebrews, then, the way he's going to reach out to this community and, and encourage them is by taking all the things they seem tempted to run back to Uh, all of the things that are familiar from the Old Testament, he's going to hold them up and take the greatest examples, greatest iterations, the greatest moments, uh, people and things in that Old Testament context, that mosaic, that uh, law of Moses context, and he's going to show how Christ is better than those things. Now, he cuts in to his argument quite naturally. He does it, it's, it's a very natural part of the flow of his argument, but multiple times in the letter, he's going to cut into his argument and issue stern warnings not to abandon the faith. And that's where we come to this morning. He started in the very first verse of chapter one 
by comparing Christ to the prophets and holding Christ up as supreme right out of the gate there with the first few verses. He transitions pretty quickly to the angels, showing that Christ is greater, a greater messenger than the angels. So he's a greater messenger than the angels, a greater messenger than the prophets. Uh, he, uh, he shows that Christ is, uh, is the founder of our salvation as he continues that argument uh, with respect to the angels and finally comes to Moses in chapter 3. He's greater than Moses. He shows that there's a rest held out to us. Moses uh, gave them rest, if you will, in the deliverance of the fourth commandment. Uh, they were commanded to keep Sabbath, and they had Sabbath days, and they had special Sabbath days, and they had Sabbath years. Uh, all of that given to them in the law of Moses by God, Jesus is greater than that, and the rest that Christ holds out is greater than the, the typical, the, the type, the illustrative rest of the Sabbath under Moses. All that brings us up to uh, the end of chapter 4, quite nearly, right there near the end, verse 14, he begins that transition into comparing Christ to the high priest, which the first was Aaron, but he's comparing him to the office because Christ's office is the same yet greater than the high priest under Moses. And that's what we finished up with last week, uh, or at least for now. He, he begins to show us how Christ's high priesthood is greater in several ways, and he, he just teased us with the fact that it is a priesthood of a different order. He's not a, a high priest under the, the priesthood of Aaron. Jesus is not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's a high priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is not a Jewish person. Melchizedek was just a, a Gentile. Uh, he was the king and high priest of Jerusalem at the time known as Salem. Uh, but he was a priest of the Most High God, we're told, during the narrative of Abraham there in Genesis. So without fleshing that out at all, the author of Hebrews is going to stop here and begin a, a, a section of warning in chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, in one way or another, it goes all the way to the end of chapter 6. And there, he transitions right at the end of chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now in chapter 7, he's going to begin to unpack uh, what it means for Jesus to be a high priest after that order of Melchizedek. So this is what we're, we're focused on this morning, and perhaps for two or even three weeks is this warning section. So I'm going to read 11 through the end of chapter 5, and we're just going to start taking it in sections. Uh, so he's just made the appeal that Christ is, is our great high priest. Uh, he's referred to the Old Testament, quoting Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, and then, like I said, he just hints at Melchizedek being the order of priesthood that Christ is in. And he stops in verse 11 and says about this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Notice there's nothing wrong with the message itself. It's not that the message is necessarily inherently hard to explain. It's hard to explain in the way that it's hard to explain something you know very well. And it's not that particularly complicated when the person you're explaining it to is two years old. Right? 
The deficiency, the difficulty, lies in the hearer, and that's the case here. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the pow- their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, the, the famous part uh, and difficulty in this warning passage is in chapter 6. We'll get there, uh, and, and I'm sure we'll get there today. I hope we'll get there today. Um, but I don't want to rush past this to get to that. Uh, I, I want to point a few things out and invite you to make observations as well. Now, one of the things that jumps out to me in these verses is the, it, it doesn't sound gentle necessarily, but it, it is. It's a relatively gentle rebuke of the people to whom he's writing. They have been a Christian community for long enough that he ought to be able to, to address them in, in rather advanced arguments. He ought to be able to say things to them that a brand new Christian wouldn't be expected to understand, but they ought to understand because they're not brand new Christians. But he says you're practically brand new Christians because you've done nothing to advance. You've done nothing to grow in godliness or your understanding of God. And you see both elements here. There's a tendency in our, uh, our modern uh, context to distinguish between uh, theology, uh, a theology that is a, an organization of facts, and ethics, which has to do with what's right and wrong and good and bad, and how we ought to think and behave. But look at the author of Hebrews. He makes no such distinction. He wants to tell them about theology. He wants to go in and tell them the truth about who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's theology. But look at why he can't. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, which is needed to do theology and to live ethically, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Good truth from evil truth. Good behavior from evil behavior. All of it together, our theology and our ethics, it's all one in the pursuit of Christ. Ethical behavior ought to flow out of right thinking. This is what the words that you may have encountered, this is what they're getting at, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy uh, is the the right worship of, and by implication, the right understanding of God. Orthodoxy is the truth about God. Orthopraxis, or orthopraxy, is the the right living, it's the right uh, action, the right work that we're engaged in because of the fact that we know God and are known by God. And those are things that can be objectively true, but they're also things that are uh, that, that grow and that change. You can objectively say that you know God because he's revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ, whom you've heard and believed, right? So you know God, and yet there are things you don't yet know about God because there's growth in the Christian life. 
Of course, ultimately, there are things that we cannot ever know about God because he is infinite and we're finite. And the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And so there's, there's always going to be, even in glory, there will be things we neither know nor understand about God because we will be finite always. The fact that we will live forever doesn't mean we will become infinite. That's not infinity. Infinity is the perfection of every part of us in every direction in time and space. Absolute perfection. That's infinity. That's God. That's not us, and it never will be us. So though there will be things we never do or can know about God, there are things that can be known that you don't know yet. And all of us in our Christian life are at different places in that knowledge, either because we haven't been a Christian for very long, or because we were a Christian in a tradition that wouldn't teach us these things, or we've been a lazy Christian, and though our tradition has been eager to teach us, we aren't eager to receive it. Uh, there's all different reasons for the, the, uh, the fact that we're at the place we're at in our spiritual growth. And some of those places are out of our, or some of those reasons are out of our control, and some of those reasons are very much in our control. And that's what the author of Hebrews is upset about with his audience right now. There's some stuff he'd like to say, and he can't because in their case, they've been lazy. They're, they're not new Christians, so they don't have that excuse. And they've not been poorly fed. God has been gracious to them, but they just won't grow. About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. See, somebody has taught them the basic principles and oracles of God, but they've become so dull of hearing that even those things, they need somebody to come teach them again. You need milk right now, he says, not solid food. You're not capable of digesting solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by what? By constant practice. Now, I don't say this uh, to be overly critical. I also wrestle with this, even as a minister who has responsibilities during the week to be in the word. It's true for all of us. None of us measure up probably to the place we'd like to be. But the reality is that if all you're getting of the Word of God and how to read and understand and interpret and apply the Word of God is on Sunday mornings or Sunday mornings and evenings. And the next time, after, after this morning or after this evening, the next time you're going to, to encounter the Word of God at all is in worship next Sunday morning. You're likely guilty of what the author of Hebrews is being critical about here. I'm just going to tell you, you're not going to grow in the Christian faith if that's your only exposure to God's Word. And that includes being in the community of the faithful during the week. Right? This community to whom he's writing, they didn't have the Word beyond what was available at church on Sunday morning. They didn't have their own copy of the Scriptures, but they heard the Scriptures on Sunday, and they memorized those Scriptures, and they repeated those scriptures to one another throughout the week as a part of being in Christian community with one another, right? That's what our lives ought to look like if we're going to be constantly practicing in order to distinguish good from evil. 
So this is the foundation. It's also the reason that he's going to transition now to a warning about apostasy. This is a community that's not only tempted to forsake Christ in order to go back to Moses, but they're making that decision from a place of profound weakness. And so he's writing to them to, to make up the deficiency in that weakness and to call them back from the bad decisions that they look inclined to make. So this is where the warning begins. Right? It, it's officially going to, to come in chapter 6, but the, the warning for us in this today is that if we as a community neglect God's word, if we neglect the truth that's found there, if we are not in constant practice moving towards, our, towards God and our understanding of him, of his person, of his work, if we're not engaged in that kind of growth as a community, then we are going to be exposed to the dangers of ignorance. We're going to be in a position where decisions need to be made and pressure is going to come from a world that rejects God, that rejects His Word. Pressure is going to fall on us, squeeze us, demand of us that we abandon the faith in order to, to worship in the civil sphere instead and in the culture. That pressure is coming in on us already, isn't it? We already feel this pressure. And there are whole congregations, entire denominations that have given themselves over to it. But let me tell you, and this is a historical fact, they gave up on the gospel because of pressure from the world because they had first given up on pursuing righteousness and knowing God according to his word. They were enabled, enfeebled, and exposed because they abandoned the word of God. And having abandoned it and become ignorant of his word and become like children who are incapable of understanding these truths, when the pressure came along to abandon the gospel, they did so too gladly. The, the threat for the community to whom the author of Hebrews is writing has not gone anywhere in history. It's a continual cycle for the church. Every generation in the church has got to be instructed and receive that instruction and in turn instruct the next. And the culture is always demanding of us, certainly more at other times, at some times than other, but the culture always wants us to abandon the faith to live the way they live. And so the warning here, the beginning of this warning, is a, it's good for us as well. We've got to remain rooted in a mature knowledge of and understanding of God's word, and it requires constant practice. So let me pause there. Questions or observations of your own? Don't go into 
Yeah, so what does is, what is the author of Hebrews probably think here about who he's addressing? Does he, does he think he's got a mixed crowd? So I'm going to make some pretty generous assumptions. One is that the author of Hebrews understands the distinction between the visible and invisible church and therefore knows for a fact that there are unbelievers in the congregation to whom he's writing. And I say congregation, I mean community. It's probably multiple congregations. Uh, that said, he writes to them as a community, assuming that they are Christians, right? That the community is a true, a genuine Christian community, uh, and that it is made up predominantly of believers. Uh, you get a, an, a hint at this in verse 9 of chapter 6. He's going to issue a shocking warning in verses 1 through 8, one that has created difficulties for the Christian community for 2,000 years. But having said those things, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, beloved is a term only used of fellow Christians, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So I think he's, he's, uh, he's certainly, we can argue objectively from the text that he believes he's writing to a genuine Christian community. Does he believe some of them are unbelievers? Uh, I, I think he does, um, because that's, that's such a basic theology, right? Not only for us today, but it has been throughout the history of the church. Also, there's, we tend to have, uh, we, we ask the question of, like, like you've asked it, we tend to think in terms of static points, Whereas the author of Hebrews and all of the New Testament authors think of the Christian faith in terms of a durative period. And the argument he's making, and other New Testament authors, including Paul, make as well, is that part of being a true Christian is remaining. And so his warning here to them isn't, I think some of you are unbelievers, and therefore, his argument is, if you are believers, you must remain. And if you will not remain, you reveal yourself to be an unbeliever. Right? So there's a dirt of quality to the Christian life that he's insisting upon. Uh, and I think that's the heart of the warning. Other questions? David. Mm -hmm. In what sense is, does that mean congregation or a community of believers? Yeah, in what sense does he mean teachers here? He seems to be speaking to everybody, but we know that in no Christian community is everyone a teacher, right? Uh, I take it, you know, one of the ways it helps me understand what I think the author of Hebrews is doing here is uh, a minister that I ministered with years ago uh, that... Um, he said to me in a, in a different context, he, he said, Matt, all of ministry in the church is men's ministry. Uh, we were talking about officer training. And his point was, though not all men will be officers, all men ought to be discipled as though they were becoming officers. Officers aren't a class of Christian that only some are allowed to attain. An officer is one who ought to be an exemplary Christian. And if so, then all of us ought to be 
striving to be qualified to be an officer. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that all of the life of the Christian ought to be one of, of pursuing qualification to be a teacher, whether you want to be a teacher or not, whether you're called to be a teacher or not, whether you'll ever get any opportunity to teach or not. You, you ought to be striving to grow so grow and my hands go up, but I'm going to use the word deeply, right? Grow so strong in your faith, in your maturity, that you could be a teacher, right? I think that's what he's getting at. Every one of you ought to be qualified to be a teacher by now, and instead none of you can teach. I'm having to write you, and I can't even say all the things I'd like to say. You wouldn't understand them if I said them. Right? So I think that's what he's getting at. Craig? Uh, I, was, I don't know what to make of it, but I was just going to note last week you were suggesting the connection that Jesus is learning not through the knowledge of good and evil. And here we have indeed the knowledge of good and evil very explicitly brought forward, and mm. also the words that were made perfect in the previous passage of the mature ear of this kind of word. So I don't know what connection to draw. Yeah, that's excellent. That's an excellent insight. If you look back up in chapter 5, uh, let's start in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. Uh, if you're one who writes in your Bible, you might underline or circle that phrase. And then down below, we'll come back to it. But right now, uh, Mark, um, I'm looking for the word in my text. Yeah, um, which one was it, Craig? Uh, verse 14. There might be an order in 614. 514 is one of those that Mature? Yeah, so mature, where it says in 14, mature, uh, that's from the same Greek word group as uh, being made perfect. And it's where we get, so it's telos is the noun. Uh, it means end, but not just end, again, as a point, but end as the, the end of a process uh, as that towards which something is moving, right? So you get that idea clearly in being made perfect, right? Uh, and then, so that's the, the verb form. And then uh, you get the noun form in 14, but solid food is for the mature. In other words, the sol solid food is for, for those who have been made perfect or are being made perfect. Uh, and then, yeah, so we talked last week about Christ how Adam and Eve in the garden would have learned the knowledge of good and evil through obedience had they obeyed. And, and doing so would have resulted in eternal life. But they chose to disobey, and they learned good and evil through their disobedience. Christ, though, does so through his obedience, and as such is being made perfect. Telos, coming to the end, right? Moving towards that purpose, accomplishing what was intended to be accomplished, and we come down here where he's addressing himself once again to the community of those who are in Christ and becoming like Christ, and he criticizes them because they are not, they're not making that movement. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. How, in that context, then, do we practice to distinguish between good and evil? by choosing the good. That's how Adam was supposed to, 
It's what Christ did, and it's now what we are called to do in Christ. We, we distinguish between good and evil by choosing the good over and over again. What were you saying, Craig? Yeah, exactly, by imitating Christ, doing what he did. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Thank you, Craig. What else? I noticed that he keeps using we. Mm-hmm. Like, we have much to say, and if we will do as God permits. Yeah, yeah, that's a good insight, a good observation. The author refers uh, to himself and apparently any others that may be joining him in writing uh, as we. And that might be a kind of a royal we, uh, or maybe him in the spirit. Uh, it's difficult to know who the we refers to, but it does refer to whoever is sending the, the letter, right? Writing it. It may be the author and whoever showed up with it in his hand. Uh, on the one hand, you would have had, you know, there's not the, the mail service. The United States Postal Service doesn't exist or anything like that exactly. Uh, and so when you wrote a letter like this, you would have to put it in someone's hands who would take it. But also in the context of the church in the first century, quite typically, you didn't just hand it to anybody who had two feet and the ability to carry it. Uh, that person was often a representative themselves, an apostle in the larger sense. They were a brother in Christ or a brother and sister in Christ who would come with that message in hand, but with the authority of delivering the message. And that might be the we that it's referring to as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also going to be held accountable. In as much as you've you've received it, you're accountable for what you do with it. That's right. Okay. <clears throat> We've got a little less than 20 minutes left. So let's go ahead and uh begin to address verses 1 through 8. Before I read the verses, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've struggled for years with how to interpret this text. Um, I, I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to a, uh, an understanding that I can hold with conviction, uh, but I, I'm, I'm not there yet. Uh, this is a, uh, it's a, a, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to backtrack a second. It's a brutally difficult text. But just as I opened by pointing out that the difficulties in the hearer not in the, the, the message itself. The, the trouble's not the text, the trouble's me, right? Uh, but it's me and every other biblical scholar throughout all of history uh, because nobody has yet come to an understanding that makes sense of all of the, the data here, all of the information. Um, and so we're gonna, in, in ways we don't necessarily always wrestle together uh, on a text, we will be wrestling together in this text today and, and probably next week as well, uh, because it's a, a very difficult text, at least read from a, a Western mindset. 
So with that in mind, let me read Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, I'm just going to pause there. Those three verses, not difficult, right? That's not the hard part. Uh, We haven't gotten there yet. It's a nice transition from where he's been, right? He's saying, we want to say more, but we can't because you're not mature. Uh, But but we we need to leave that behind. We need to go on uh, and not repeat ourselves about the basics of the faith, the foundation of the faith, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, faith and repentance, instruction about washings, probably a reference to baptism, the laying on of hands, which the church would do immediately after a baptism, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, which were part of the the new Christian's instruction before they they went through baptism. Uh, And he, he hopes that God will permit that he can go on to those things. So far, so good. Verse four. For it is impossible. As I continue reading, let me leave this impression on your mind. There is no stronger Greek word to communicate the absolute impossibility of a thing. He will use this verb, I think, three more times, or uh, this word three more times in the book. In each case, it is, it is impossible for God to lie. That's one of the the uses of impossible in the book. And the other two are every bit as strong. We would never about any of those other things suggest impossible means anything else, but it cannot be done, period. This is not a hypothetical, right? It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. That's the end of the impossible. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Now, he's going to go on with an illustration, but that's the argument proper. It's verses 4 through 6 that are so difficult for us. Uh, And I'm going to explain why they're difficult, and then I'm going to try and, and unravel it as best I can. They're difficult, one, because he, whatever he means here, whatever these phrases refer to, someone for whom those things are true, If they abandon the faith, it's impossible for them to be restored. It's an objective statement. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, pastorally, I'm eager to rush to relieve you of the burden of what that implies. And the author of Hebrews will in a moment. In verse 9, he's going to begin doing everything he can to, to support the people who have just read this thing. But we, we can't rush past it too quickly. Now, Scripture is clear, and, and this is important. 
This is vitally important in, in how we interpret Scripture. We must take difficult passages and read them in light of the clear ones. That's a basic principle of interpretation. And what we have from Scripture clearly, absolutely inviolably, is that one who has been brought from death to life will not die again. You cannot lose your salvation. Period. If you are regenerate, which is just another word for being brought from death to life, regenerate, born again, right, dead and alive, if that's you, you cannot die again. My, my confidence in that truth and the fact that Scripture teaches that is unshakable. So whatever he means by those who've once been enlightened, taste the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, whoever that is, he says if they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Now, bear in mind, he says this to a community that he believes is a true church. And he still feels the need to say it. And having said it, he means it. We're not going to wave our hand over this passage and say he's talking about a hypothetical. If he's talking about a hypothetical, it's a waste of paper. What's the point in telling a community that, in which nobody can suffer this, to be careful not to let that happen, Make sure on a Sunday morning you guys don't start levitating and float out the door. That would be horrible. Let me tell you all the bad things that come from levitating and floating out the door. We are not going to levitate and float out the door. What's the point in issuing that warning, right? If this weren't possible, the warning is absurd. So we've got to accept the weight of what he's saying. It is impossible for such people, having fallen away, to be restored again to repentance. So it's a serious, serious warning. And remember what we already know from the text, that he's talking to a community that has neglected to grow in their knowledge of God and who is now tempted to go back to Judaism, to abandon the faith. Now, one of the ways that I wrestle with this text is, and, and I do this carefully, this, this can't, I can't be dogmatic about this. Uh, this is not a, uh, it's a weak form of interpretation. It has to be taken together with a lot of other things uh, based on the one thing I'm about to say, which is experience that I've had. We can't interpret Scripture by that alone. Uh, but what we have in this case is the testimony of Scripture. All of Scripture up to, from Genesis 1 all the way up to Hebrews 6.3, and from Hebrews 6.7 all the way to Revelation 21, we have the testimony of Scripture that you cannot lose your salvation. Once you've been made alive, you can't be made unalived again. That's it. With that testimony of Scripture in mind, one of the experiences that I have had on more than one occasion 
that gives me a, a paradigm, some basis and experience to, to perhaps understand this, is people I've seen walk away from the faith. Here's who I don't think the text is talking about. People who know Christ and are repenting of their sins and are grieved by their sins and can't wait for Christ to come back again to be made perfect, and yet they're going to get up in the morning and they're going to sin. And they might sin the same sin they sinned yesterday, and they might sin that same sin again before lunch and then after lunch, and then sin it again before they go to bed that night. And they're, they're, they're struggling with their faith, and they're struggling with assurance and they know themselves to be sinners, and they find themselves wondering, how can I keep doing this? How can I continue in sin knowing who Christ is and what he's done for me? That's not who he's talking about. And it, it might help to point this out. It's one of the things I've struggled with, but I, I think I've come to a right understanding now. When he says that it's impossible since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Because of the way that's laid out in the English, I used to think that that referred to coming back, i.e., it's impossible to restore them again because if they were restored, they would be crucifying God, Christ again and holding him up to contempt. That's not what it's talking about. It's referring to their departure, not their return. It's impossible to restore them again if they've fallen away because in falling away, they are crucifying once again the Son of God, holding Him up to contempt. That is, when you know the gospel, when you know that you have been indicted by God and that it is a just judgment and that Jesus Christ took that indictment upon himself and went to the cross and suffered in your place, and you have embraced it, you've, you've said aloud, I believe that to be true, and then you abandon it, you must by necessity be rejecting that truth. You must be saying, oh, there was a Jesus, and he hung on a cross, but that's not what he accomplished, and he didn't do it for me. You're holding him up, to contempt. You're putting him back on the cross in order to mock him. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. I've known people. I've known ministers. Friends. Who have wrecked not only their ministry, but their faith. Who have gone from a minister in good standing. And let me remind you what's required to become a minister in good standing. You not only have to have made a good profession of faith and demonstrated over time the gifts and the calling, but you've had to go to seminary and having finished seminary, be called by a church and examined by a presbytery. The examinations are written examinations. My written examinations took over 20 hours. Having finished your written examinations, you're examined by a committee. My committee exam was over four hours. Having passed your committee exam, you are recommended to the presbytery and you stand on the floor of presbytery in front of 70 ordained ministers and you preach. And then having, been, having preached, you're examined again on all the same things that you were examined on by the committee. And the committee and the presbytery both examine you on the Bible. What part of it? All of it. You're expected to know all of it. On your theology, what part of it? All of it. On your knowledge of Christian history, what part of it? All of it. On your understanding of the sacraments and our church government, what parts? All. All that can be said. 
not only about what we believe, but what about anyone else has believed about these things in history. All of it's on the table. And having passed all of those things, you stand in front of a congregation and in the context of a worship service, you take vows before God. I've watched men who have been through that process have affairs with their secretaries. And having been stripped of their ordination, go from an affair with their secretary to same-sex attraction and giving themselves over to homosexuality. So that the last time I heard from them, they were ranting on social media about the falsehood of the gospel and affirming paganism, if not outright atheism. I don't ever want to suggest that anybody is beyond salvation, and I don't believe that even this text gives us permission to say of any particular person they can no longer be saved. But Scripture is actually full of examples of people whose faith was wrecked and they were not given a way back. Esau sold his birthright and was wrecked over it. The generation in the wilderness, in the Exodus, lost. Though we, we believe Moses is saved, no question, Moses was, was regenerate. Nonetheless, because of his sin, he wasn't allowed into the promised land. There was nothing he could do to fix that. Scripture's filled with examples. Saul, finally making an offering without waiting for Samuel. And when Samuel shows up, he says, you're finished. You're done. The kingdom is taken from you. Saul pled, pled with Samuel. No. The author of Hebrews is issuing a serious warning here. I don't think it's for that bruised wick and that smolder or that smoldering wick and bruised reed. I don't I don't believe there's anybody in this room this morning. I'm looking around, I I know pretty much everybody. I don't believe there's anybody in this room this morning who's done what he's talking about here. But can it be done? Yes. And in our simplistic terminology, we would say such a person was never regenerate. They were never saved. But the problem I've got with that sort of hand-waving language is that it implies that it must have been obvious somehow or that, it was, that they weren't really ever truly committed. Listen, they may not have ever actually been regenerate, but you didn't know it. They didn't know it probably. Can't imagine anybody going through a process to become an ordained minister and then giving themselves over to a life of ministry. But they know they're faking it the whole time. Right? That's why the author of Hebrews is saying to them, be careful. Be careful. You think this isn't you. But you don't know. And when you neglect God's word, and you continue in the immaturity of a faith that you, you need to be re-instructed in the stuff we require catechumens, non-baptized people, to know before we baptize them. You, you're taking a big risk. A shallow, weak, ignorant 
faith is a faith that is ripe to be plucked by the world. And do not tell yourself, I've said the things I'm supposed to say, I belong to the community I'm supposed to belong to, that won't happen to me. The author of Hebrews is writing to the church, and he believes it to be a true church. It does seem clear that he doesn't believe that it's happened yet. He's writing to plead with them. In a sort of emergency context, he's, he's going straight to the problem. Don't go back to Moses. But as he begins to unpack that instruction, that warning not to go back to Moses, he begins to show them the problem. The problem is you don't know any better because you've been lazy. Don't be lazy. Let's, let's move on to better things. Let's move on to deeper truths. Because if you will ground yourself in a growing knowledge of God by His Word and Spirit, you will find an anchor for your soul that will not permit you to apostate, to apostatize. I think that's what he's getting at. I, I cannot reconcile these verses with the rest of Scripture if I attempt to say that they teach you can be regenerate and then die again. That's just not on the table. But I also can't accept what has been the, the predominant evangelical interpretation, at least popularly, which is a quick hand wave about the hypothetical nature of the warning. And we don't have to worry about that. That's not us. All good. That's a, a dangerous reading of the text that I don't think is true. I think it's a real warning and one to which every generation of Christians is potentially subject. And therefore, we ought to take it seriously. And it begins with abandoning God's word, ignoring his word. Okay. I don't know how much more there is that I can personally say about these verses, but you probably have questions and would like to interact, and we're a minute over already. So we're going to do that next Sunday. I'm not, I'm not dodging it. I'm not dodging it. But seriously, if you had something you wanted to say, write it down, and we'll open with that next Sunday. Okay? Don't forget it. I want to talk about it. I may not be able to help you. I may have absolutely nothing to give you, uh, depending on what your question is but we'll do our best. Um, okay, let me close some prayer. Father, um, I pray that we would indeed take the warning seriously. I thank you uh, for the ways that you are growing this congregation, uh, individually and families, uh, together as a body. Uh, we pray that we would never be so full of pride that we would ignore such a warning. But Father, I also pray that there would be none among us uh, who, because of their love of Christ and their, uh, their impatience with their sin, would fall under the, the false burden of believing that they have done what the author of Hebrews describes here. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, you would shore us up, uh, that you would renew in us our confidence in Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith and the one who accomplishes all be with us this week. Build us up, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.